Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Forefront Podcast. We are a community of pioneers exploring and building at the forefront of the Web3 Playground. We've dug through the noise and surfaced the signal on the state of the art of tokenized communities in the internet native economy. Enjoy this bi-weekly roundup of the latest and greatest in social tokens, DAOs, and more. Hello, hello, fam. Welcome to the Forefront Podcast. I am your host, Caroline, joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, how's it going, everyone? This is our, our second our second roll-up. How are you feeling about things? I I love our prep calls. I, I keep talking. It's just like, <laughs> so invigorating. We both feel like we worked a full week after just two days, and yet I'm still energized to have a two-hour-long conversation deep dive in this space. So I hope uh, other people are having as much fun as we are. Sweet. Yeah, I'm very grateful to have uh, this time with you and uh, thinking right now in my mind's eye about this audience that we are so grateful to have forming around us, small uh, as it may be at this point, but we loved hearing from you in this past uh, week or so, loved hearing the feedback, and uh, again, can't wait to hear your uh, reactions uh, to what we'll be building together going forward into the future. So Alex, why don't you kick us off? We were talking about the phrase social tokens. Yes. So I know there's been a lot of talk in the industry about what is a DAO? Like, what are the different definitions of DAOs? And some people have very strong dogmatic opinions on what defines a DAO, anywhere from it's a Discord channel with a shared treasury, all the way to it's this incredible new coordination structure that's going to radically change the way everyone in the world works in these more uh, loftier, all-encompassing type of definitions. And I don't think here at Forefront, we want to pigeonhole the industry into picking any one of those. I think it like it's one of those things that can be fluid. Different people can see those things in different ways. But we thought it would be good to at least have an audience for uh, all the different definitions that are out there when it comes to social tokens and the umbrella of things that roll up into that. Uh, things like DAOs would be one of those social tokens. Um, personal social tokens. Alex is a great example of one of the first ones. You have NFT-based communities. So all these things might roll up into the definition of social tokens. So we wanted to give an audience to those different definitions. So different people can kind of ascribe to those definitions that align with them and run with it. I think those definitions, clearly defining them is as important as something like a mission statement for a company. Yes. And to help us out here, we're, we looked at an amazing resource and not just because it's, it's been uh, put out there by Forefront, but it, FF Learn, if y'all haven't checked it out yet, we, we highly recommend it. You can find it at our website at Forefront.market. Uh, but there is an amazing uh, course there, course one, what is a social token? And we just kind of want to read a, a few excerpts uh, from this course because it really breaks down the several categories of tokens that are often referred to under this umbrella term of social token. And again, just with the caveat that is, this is an emergent space, the, the phrase is quite fluid and probably should remain that way. Uh, but the first one are community tokens. So examples include the whale token, the FWB, or the forefront token. And the definition from FF Learn says community tokens are generally used within collectives that do not center around one individual or creator. In this instance, community tokens may allow a community to organize around shared mutual goals or outcomes, oftentimes within a DAO. Groups that could use community tokens include informal clubs, online communities, collectives, or cooperatives. Uh, creator tokens. So this is, uh, this is a really cool uh, subtype of social token. Here's the definition from FF Learn. Creator tokens are similar to fan clubs, 
where creators can use tokens to reward fans with different kinds of perks or levels of access. In this case, tokens serve as an incentivizing and organizational tool to mobilize a creator-centric community towards a collective mission. And later on in the show, we'll actually be uh, talking about a really cool creator token that recently launched. So stay tuned for that. Personal tokens. Alex just brought this up. Uh, and this is the Alex token from Alex Mazmich. This is a very notable example of a personal token. Uh, it was described as a blend between a small income sharing agreement and a human IPO. Uh, by selling his personal token, Alex was able to raise $20,000, finance his move to the Bay Area, and launch his career in crypto. And that career has been going quite well. Uh, brand tokens are a final category that are called out in the FF Learn uh, Course 1. And I'm sure this will see explosive growth in the near future as companies begin to discover the power of, uh, of tokens for organizing and engaging communities. So FF Learn says brand tokens may be used by an existing organization in a way that looks like a loyalty reward point system. So all these previous subcategories of social tokens are fungible, they're interchangeable, but what about NFTs? NFTs are clearly distinct. Um, they are non-fungible. They're unique to a specific uh, digital asset or virtual item. But despite this distinction, uh, tokenized communities today often use both social tokens and NFTs to cultivate, engage, and coordinate uh, communities. Uh, Alex, uh, can you think of an example that comes to mind of, of, a, of a community that's using social tokens and NFTs um, to, to cultivate communities? Oof, for both, using both, um, mm -hmm. actually, I believe Kongs is doing something like this. So you have the NFT itself, Kongs, and then might fall into this category, but there are kind of passive income generating streams there for bananas. And I believe it's either once per day, once per week, don't quote me on that, you get 10 bananas if you hold that NFT. So there's an, a great mm. example of utility generating NFT versus mm -hmm. just a purely speculative JPEG. Um, so really, really interesting implications there. There's also interesting regulatory implications because if you define it explicitly as passive income, it now gets determined, it, it gets categorized as a security and now the SEC is about to come after you. So defining it, speaking of clearly defining these different things, yes. it is almost super, super important to define these even for regulatory reasons. Something to keep in mind. How interesting. Yes. I, the next thing I want to jump in uh, with, with you and the audience, it, it's a, a piece in, entitled Currency of Community uh, that was written by the investor David Phelps. And so he was looking at this relationship between NFTs and social tokens, and he argues that NFTs are actually the best social tokens and always have been. Um, so I love this quote from him. I'm going to read it out to y'all. The worth and meaning of our NFTs are derived from the values of the community that collects them. But the worth and meaning of the community are also derived from the usage of these NFTs. And that complex interplay that allows us a sense of belonging through the qualities that make us unique, well, none of that is possible with fungible currencies. So David then gives five reasons why NFTs are far better than fungible tokens for building community. I want to highlight just a few. Uh, first, he says NFTs are next level fan merch. So this is merch that promotes itself as the product. So in other words, NFTs can not only be merchandise for a creator to promote their work to a community, but often are the work itself that brings a decentralized community together in the first place. Fungible tokens just can't do this. 
Um, NFTs enable tiered pricing for different levels of fandom, for instance, with different editions and different rarities. So if I'm a devotee, I can buy the ultra rare legendary edition of an NFT. If I'm a more casual fan, I can buy a less expensive uh, common edition. Again, fungible tokens on their own can't do this. Uh, Another important differentiator, NFTs incentivize recurring revenue. Fans naturally want to keep purchasing NFTs with new benefits, or let's say uh, fans love a particular creator or a collection of NFTs. They'll, they'll keep buying up NFTs from that one collection. Again, fungible tokens don't benefit from the same inbuilt dynamic. For instance, uh, token gating for creator coins. It often looks like, hey, buy 20 US dollars worth of my coin and hold on to it to maintain access to my Discord. So if that token gating threshold increases over time to say you have to now buy $40 uh, US, uh, USD worth of my coin, this could be felt as almost coercive or exploitative for the fans. Sometimes that doesn't really make them happy. So that's that's the point that David's trying to make. And his conclusion is that fungible tokens are better for building economies, while NFTs are better for building communities. Um, what, what do you think about this, Alex? Because I know you, ha- you, you have a background in economics. Is that right? Economics and psychology. And I was actually going to quote the more psychology piece here, because what I was thinking of is NFTs seem to align more with the primal part of our brain. There's just something Mm. that we love about collecting things, whether it's something as simple as like collecting stamps. There's a whole community around that Um, Mm -hmm. or Pokemon cards. That's what I grew up with. That's what that's what I I understand this space uh, from that perspective. Yeah. And when you look at the way the brain develops over time, I mean, if, if you if you separate these two things between fungible tokens and non-fungible tokens, fungible tokens are more of getting people bought in by an idea. And ideas in those kind of um, enigmatic concepts are developed later in the brain than something like a physical object that I can collect and that is visually appealing to me. That's an older, mm-hmm. more primal part of the brain. So mm-hmm. my, my kind of hypothesis here is that the NFT thing is it's really difficult to explain logically to people because it's really that older part of the brain that's more subconscious Mm. and you can't really articulate clearly. (laughs) And people get very, very into the communities because they start to identify with, I have a Kong and that it's my complete digital identity. Um, So there's, there's this visual aspect to NFTs that I think hits that older primal part of the brain where something like a fungible token that's more of an idea can never really reach that part of the brain, since it's really just a an idea. Oh, I love that. I've never heard it put that way, but I, I resonate with that, Alex. And I, what uh, the point that David made was that you know by by issuing, uh, what are the benefits for a creator of of issuing uh, fungible social tokens to organize their communities? He said, well, these projects get to keep a number of those tokens for themselves, so they're effectively giving themselves free money and then watching it go up in, in value as they get more and more people to buy into the project. So when I thought of when I thought of this, I, I think okay, when you're when you say that fungible tokens are better for building economies, you're you're issuing money, you're issuing free money. It's an information technology, but that information is relatively one dimensional. And I think that's kind of like a, a little bit of uh, it's very parallel to what you were saying. It's it's let's say economic speech. You know, for social tokens, that speech revolves around the perception of of value that drives demand for the token, and, and hopefully with the aim of increasing the price, but. NFTs build communities because in addition to this economic speech, so so to speak, there, there's cultural speech, there's personal speech, there's so many more layers of interactive meaning and moreover ones that we exercise autonomy over. So 
what you just said, the, the sort of primal uh, need for us to collect things and to feel like a very intimate uh, connection with that. A particular NFT means something to me for very personal reasons at the same time that it signals membership in a greater community with its own ethos. So this speech revolves around my identity, my aspirations, and this personal speech element uh, we can characterize it in that way, is very, very powerful. I think it's much more powerful than the sort of one-dimensional uh, economic price, you know, price go up speech. Yeah, I, I, I'm just constantly fascinated by the economic side of this. John Paler mentioned this, that for the first time in history, we're able to create our own microeconomies and test them mm. out. We are creating our own incentive structures. And there's really, really cool hybrid ones coming out exactly like Kongs. You have the NFT side that more speaks to the primal part of the brain and it's like the community driven aspect. And then you kind of have that passive income, for lack of a better word, for the, aside from the security aspect uh, of the fungible token that comes with it. And they're creating this whole incentive structure th- that drives the value up there. And it's just, this is absolutely unheard of. I know when we were deep in the space, it's kind of like, okay, yeah, a lot of different projects are doing this. But if we just take a step back and just see how incredible this is, (laughs) never in history have you been able to hold constant all of these other variables. Because naturally, if you were going to create a new incentive structure, you kind of have to do it in these macro environments where there's all these different other variables. And now you can create your own little ecosystem, hold a bunch of variables constant and say, we're going to create this token, these token economics. We're going to create this Mm -hmm. incentive structure and try it out. If it doesn't work, great, you move on. But there's just all these different microeconomies that are getting tested out and, and different variations of them. So it's really, really interesting to see all the testing that's being done. And then you, you end up seeing the most successful ones just end up getting copied over and over and over. And it's kind of this iterative thing. Yeah, It's just like the evolution of this space. I love it. Yes, yes. So this is a perfect segue into our, uh, our usual segment on new social tokens, tooling and product. And the project that we want to highlight is called Radical. Um, So Radical, uh, in essence, has been described as like a decentralized GitHub. So it's a a peer-to-peer stack for building software together that harnesses Ethereum-powered decentralized orgs called Radical Orgs. So beyond offering a new standard for code collaboration, Alex, it aims to solve for the entrenched problem of the financial unsustainability of developing open source protocols. So we just finished talking about microeconomies. We just finished talking about uh, using uh, tokens to build uh, economies, to build community. So without a centralized company to drive and fund the development of these open source protocols, the need for new business models around public goods arises. So on the developer side, uh, Radical now enables you to fund and sustain your own open source work without relying on intermediaries by using NFT membership. And we're going to explore in a moment how the Radical funding NFT model essentially combines these twin powers of fungible and non-fungible tokens of building economies and building communities. But on the supporter side, you can now sponsor open source projects and you can participate in the governance of those projects. So Radical provides the building blocks for self-contained, self-sustaining developer economies. If you want to support an open source project, you purchase the NFT. So far, we're in familiar territory. But this NFT purchase is actually a commitment to paying a continuing monthly subscription. If the monthly contributions stop, you get to keep the NFT, but the NFT's benefits become inactive. 
So we see a combination of the non-fungible and the fungible dynamics we talked about earlier. Devs issue free money to themselves by releasing these NFTs um, that must be continuously funded in fungible tokens to remain active. So again, the, the key differentiator here, actually the way that it works is, is super cool. You receive the NFT and this functions as usual as a signal or badge of community membership. You get benefits like soft influence over the project, the ability to vote on polls, on snapshot, um, but you have to transfer a quantity of DAI stable coins into that community NFT. And that DAI is then treated like an account balance and used to cover future monthly support payments to the project. The token always has to have enough DAI locked up in it to cover those monthly project support fees or else they become inactive. And that means you can no longer use them to vote on snapshot or to gain access to permissioned project related content. Um, so I think this is super, super interesting evolution of how we use NFTs as a badge of community membership and the, the giving of exclusive benefits. But also, I think I love the fact that this is really this funding model is saying once you're a part of the community with the NFT, NFT purchase, your obligations continue in time just as a developer's obligations continue in time. A sustainable business model for public goods requires a mutual commitment from developers and the greater community. Well, what do you think about this project, Alex? A few things going on. Um, you talked about gas prices being prohibitive, and that's exactly what's going to happen with certain types of projects like this that are especially built on Ethereum that have really high gas prices. Mm -hmm. uh, the layer twos are absolutely helping, but gas prices can absolutely be a... Uh, a blocker to adoption in this space. And I, I would say in certain projects, decentralization, security don't matter as much to the target demographic, but something like uh, GitHub and now this kind of Web3 native version of GitHub being radical, I imagine a lot of the people who've been on GitHub for years understand and really align with the ethos of decentralization and, and, and openness in this space. So I feel like radical is just waiting to have this rapid wave of adoption. If if the, uh, the gas fees aren't as prohibitive. Whereas something like NFTs, for example, that's a little bit more accessible to the average person who might not really understand the value or even really care about things like decentralization or security as much as things like, hey, this picture looks cool and mm -hmm. I want to be a part of this community. Um, mm -hmm. On the NFT side too, I mean, here's a, another great example of using that kind of primal part of the brain to use an NFT as a token, as like a gated... Um, badge really to get into that community versus something that's not as sexy as saying like, Hey, I have 50 tokens. So therefore I get into this community Whereas something yes. like this NFT is a badge. I mean, there's so many different use cases for this. You could display this in your house. There are now, um, digital frames that you can actually connect your NFTs directly to those frames, especially if they're animated, they can see the animation in there. And someone could walk into your house and you could point to that and say, look, I'm a part of this community. Look at this badge. And there's a more visual aspect to it. So again, I think it's touching on that primal part of the brain that's going to just, in a non-logical way, and maybe in a way that's difficult for people in that space to really understand, they want those badges on a deeper level. So I, I think it's absolutely genius as people are trying to are starting to understand that and using NFTs more as that badge and that gate into the community versus something that's a little bit more, that's uh, it, just not as sexy as NFTs, like a certain amount of fungible token uh, amount as a gate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally agreed. Um, so let's let's jump into the segment on new social token projects. As we mentioned earlier, uh, today we're going to focus on a really cool creator 
Bitcoin project that recently launched. So Felicia Day is the name of the creator. She recently launched her creator coin called Geeks, G-E-E-X, on the Rally platform. So Felicia, I think, Alex, is such a powerful example of someone mm-hmm. who seems to have been preparing all her life for yes. this, uh, for Web3 <laughs> and for the creator and ownership economy. She, she's the author of a book, a best-selling book called Embrace Your Weird, Face Your Fears, and Unleash Your Creativity, which she describes as a funny, geek, self-help book with exercises. Love it. Um, the epigraph to the book reads, I love you just the way you are. Um, and the first sentence I, I just want to read because it, it's, it's, it's vulnerable. It just touches me. It says, I've been plagued with anxiety my whole life. It wasn't until I started creating that I finally felt free enough to show off my weird self. I want to help you show off your weird self too. So in addition to writing two best-selling books, Felicia is a professional actress, uh, has tons of credits, over a hundred credits to her name on IMDb, including the show Supernatural and The Magicians. But she's best known for her work in the web video world. She co-starred in Joss Whedon's internet musical, Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, which won tons of accolades, including an Emmy. Perhaps her most famous work, uh, Felicia created and starred in the web series, The Guild, which ran for six seasons and I think uh, streamed on Netflix. Have you seen this? Yes. This is where I learned about Felicia. And uh, if if you're not familiar with her, she's essentially a spokesperson for all geeks, just geek culture. (laughs) And I love The Guild because I came from the MMORPG world. And that show is all about just kind of degenerate people who are just addicted (laughs) to this game and then have to encounter real life problems. So it's really, really well done. And it's amazing too, because like you said, it's a web series. I think that's really where she got her start. And as soon as Netflix picked them up, the the production quality just shot through the roof. So I, I highly recommend that. And I totally agree that she is a perfect candidate for someone who's just working her whole life to get into the web three space. So I, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this catches on because a lot of her fans kind of align with the ethos here. So Mm -hmm. they're a little bit more technical. They come from the gaming side of things. So naturally they're ripe to understand the value of Web3 and the ethos there. So I'm excited to see it. Yes. So the guild, uh, the guild was actually an exemplar of a like storytelling experiment that was bottom up and community driven. So before it ended up on Netflix, I think it started in 2007. And for the first season, uh, it was solely supported by fans. And this was through like PayPal. This was like pre Kickstarter, pre Patreon, you know, so this is, this was a huge deal. And nowadays, Felicia streams on Twitch weekly to an audience of more than 200K followers. She plays Ambition, New World, and Fortnite, where she's racking up thousands of views each stream. She's not too busy these days. She only has three podcasts, writes a bi-weekly newsletter on Substack, and has three (laughs) TV shows in development. So a ton of free time on her hands. And across all the social media platforms, she has over 6 million followers. So I'm just kind of like creating this this uh, this image for you of of I think the sea change that is coming when more and more people with uh, Felicia's sort of ethos and following begins to cross over into the Web three space. So she came to the rally platform in mid September. She had already built up a Discord of twenty k members, and she's working her Geeks Coin into her lively Twitch stream schedule. And she's also using the Rally Twitch bot, which overlays her Twitch streams with live donations that are happening on Rally. So she is all in with this creator coin geeks. So how exactly is she using the geeks coin? Well, she has a token gated book club. Uh, she has weekly Tuesday stage events on discord. And to access this, you need to buy and hold a minimum of 20, uh, geeks. 
And what are the campaigns that she's running? So for rally, campaigns can be seen on the rally creator profile. Campaigns are just offerings in the creator's coin uh, through the rally platform, through the creator storefront on rally.io. So to purchase merchandise or perks from these campaigns, fans have to pay Felicia in geeks rather than USD. So here are some of the campaigns she's offering. Twitch shout out uh, for 20 geeks, signed headshot for 80 geeks, personalized video shout out for 99 geeks. And she's also doing a newsletter shout out. So I think given the size of her audience, these prices are more than super reasonable. I think they're actually quite underpriced relative to the size of her audience, but it just shows that she's super serious about converting her community to the geeks economy. And finally, I just, I love this, Alex. I I have to, we have to have a look at what Felicia has to say about why she's turning to Web3 and the creator coin. If we look on our Discord FAQ, we read, question, why is this cool, Felicia? It seems weird. And she says, yes, cryptocurrency has a big douche factor. I understand, but I promise I'm not (laughs) getting rich quick off this. It's a long-term building of community in a new way. Think of it as a replacement to Patreon where everyone benefits. Instead of giving 30% of what fans give a creator via Twitch or Patreon or Cameo, the artist gets 100% of the money. Also, you yourself, as a community member, can purchase geeks and benefit from the success of the community. It's that simple. Yes, I know it's not that simple. That's why we have this wiki. Ha ha. So what do you think about that, Alex? I don't think I could have said it better. I Yeah, this is another great example of... Uh, building this community up for scratch. They already had the community there. It is just ripe for tokenizing it. And it's I, uh, I'm really excited to see what you can do for it. This is the big difference, I think, here, where especially Twitch streamers and I, I think uh, Patreon tiered systems. So you, you'll have different Patreon tiers where, hey, if you invest this much per, if you spend this much per month, then you get this. If you spend this much per month, then you get this. But now it's instead of having the social capital, I mean, she had 20,000 followers when they didn't have any kind of financial uh, benefit to it, right? Mm-hmm, Owning exactly. part of that community. Mm-hmm. Just think of how much more fervent the fans get now where they own part of her success. I yeah. think that just creates such a positive loop here where they are rooting for her. They want her to succeed. And just as in addition to the social capital that's always going to be there, people love her. That's not going away. There's a, there's a financial aspect there where they own part of that community and naturally... When you own something, you appreciate it a lot more. So I, I, it's super, super interested to see how the community adapts to this and changes. Um, I, I'm interested to see if there are any kind of unforeseen changes in the way the community behaves, because there might be some other types of considerations you have to take into account when you're building out the incentive structure and the tokenomics there to make sure that fans aren't switching from the kind of social aspect there and just saying, you better not mess up because I have a financial say in your in your ability. So I <laughs> I, I, I I worry about this to a certain extent. Yeah. I don't want this to turn into mm-hmm. um, you know someone is feeling like they're on this pedestal, and then people not only have a, mm. a social say in this, and it, um, they they also have a financial aspect into it too, where it's like if I mess up, something happens, I could actually be hurting people financially. So I wonder from. Um, from that standpoint, from the uh, mental health, especially with someone like Felicia with that background, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. N- not to be negative, but something to keep in mind and look out for to make sure that the incentive structure isn't encouraging that type of behavior. And it's more of an additional positive energy 
because people have a financial stake versus people just switching completely to animalistic. You, you have, uh, I have a complete financial stake in your future, so you better not mess up type of thing. All right, so I will take the next one. One theme that we keep talking about is curation. And to quote one of our uh, DAO members, Rafa, curation is hard, plain and simple. It's one of the more difficult problems to solve. And then there's a lot of different DAOs, people, companies really trying to solve for this problem in crypto because we keep talking about people feel overwhelmed and burnt out by just the sheer amount of information in the space. So for, uh, for this industry specifically, it's especially important for curation and it's, it's just really difficult versus just scouring Twitter and hoping that you're going to find something and connect the dots naturally. So when we, when we look at curation, there are uh, a few different new tools coming out that are really cool, specifically in the NFT space. And just from my own perspective <laughs> in trying to uh, go through OpenSea, it's a very difficult experience to try and find the type of art or PFPs or whatever that it is I want to find. I really kind of have to ask current state, or at least until these tools came out, on Twitter and just follow people who have my same kind of style and just see what it is that they, that they are recommending on Twitter. But now there's an actual specific tool called Context, which is an NFT app. And essentially what it is, is it gives you a chance to follow certain addresses and see what it is that they're buying. What are they holding? What are members of FWV collecting right now? What NFTs are my friends minting today? So you can actually follow certain addresses to see what NFTs they're looking at. And like I mentioned on Twitter, it's, it's a little more difficult to find those people who have my style and then start to follow them. But once you identify them, here's a great way now to look at that address and be able to explicitly follow everything that they purchase, that they sell, that they hold, and give yourself a little bit of a way to sift through the noise. I mean, NFTs is one of those spaces in the crypto space where it's there's a ton of noise. There's a ton of copycats. There's a lot of scams. Um, so it's, it's one of those spaces that is absolutely due for uh, curation solutions. And Context isn't the only one doing this. They're, they're not the only solution out there. There are other platforms out there like Nifty's, like Showtime. Is I, I really like Showtime looking through that where it's, it's a much better browsing experience for users to look at art, follow different people. Um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a much better user experience than OpenSea, which is very, very difficult to search on certain criteria and find art that you're really looking for. So uh, I want to keep that theme going of curation because we're going to get into a little bit more of it later on when we highlight different DAOs. We're going we're gonna to talk more about ScribeDAO, which is uh, another solution going at a different avenue for how to curate content in the space. So stay, stay tuned for that. Yeah, beautiful. So that takes us out of our uh, segment on exploring the world of social tokens. Now we're going to dive into DAOs. So the first uh, segment is new DAO tooling. Uh, I want to uh, jam a little bit on the Orca protocol. This is currently in private testing. There's no token, there's no public launch date yet set. Um, and I'm getting a lot of this information right now from uh, their website and from their mirror publication, specifically the article Pods, the downfall of token vote, token voting spelled D-A-O, downfall. Um, so I, I'm so interested in what these pods may eventually look like, Alex. Maybe you and I can jam on, on what the possibilities are. But the lead in for this article is just fantastic. So it says, when not fantasizing about the next 1000x moonshot, many crypto natives dream about how DAOs will transform the way people collaborate. 
DAOs are imagined as flat and fluid organizations, the opposite of the rigid, pyramid-like structures dominating the corporate world today. An organization where every stakeholder gets to speak their mind and be heard, whether you're a big whale or just a small thing. It's a noble end state to pursue, but the reality is that as DAOs grow, they tend to encounter pain points that hinder their progress. So immediately we go into a discussion of what governance is. And I want to highlight a particular sentence here because I think that it, it, it all kind of comes, converges in, in this sentence. Roughly defined, the ideal governance model is one that maximizes meaningful participation and the organization's efficacy. So this qualifier of participation with meaningful, Alex, I think is very key because it is well known, for instance, that voting participation in DAOs is usually quite low. Um, so you really can't say that there's meaningful uh, participation or, or meaningful governance if there are only a small handful, a, a small handful of token holders are actually participating in that governance. And the theory that's posited for this is that folks do not feel informed enough in the minutia of things to vote. And so oftentimes I think this insistence on maximal governance or on DAO-wide governance turns out to be a formality or even worse, uh, works against meaningful participation. Um, so the next section talks about the unfortunate reality of DAO scaling. And once again, there's this, this sentence that I, I want to highlight. Uh, the unfortunate reality of DAO scaling is that it is very difficult to maintain a high degree of participation. As fewer people are willing to participate in the DAO's coordination and governance, the higher the risk becomes of centralized power. So I want to stop there and, and just say, well, this raises a really important question. And, and this takes us back to the first episode, Alex, where you and I were jamming on, you know, are we asking the right questions? How do we know that we're solving for, for the right problems? Uh, mm -hmm. How do we know that the ideas that we keep hearing are actually ones that have gone through the stress tests and have risen to the top versus the fact that we may be caught in an echo chamber and everyone's looking at everyone else and seeing the same things and just automatically assuming that this is the way to go? So for me, this, this, this sentence, the higher the risk of centralized power with the fewer people that are willing to participate in the DAO's coordination, I, I ask myself, what do we want here? What, are we asking the right questions? Traditional corp culture and globalization, I think it's rightfully criticized for marginalizing, exploiting workers, the community, the stakeholders, uh, other than executives and shareholders. DAOs want to Re remediate this. They want to bring community in the deepest sense of that term back to the center. They want to empower human beings who contribute their labor. DAOs want members to meet one another as equals. But the question for me is how do we bring community back to the center, figuratively speaking, in a way that is meaningful and fruitful and achieves the goals of economic association and collaboration, which is, I think, in, in short, our goals of economic association are to produce what we need and desire and deliver these goods as and when we desire as efficiently as possible. So the question is, do we want as many people as possible participating in every mm -hmm. minutia of DAO governance? Or do we want people being brought into the fold as community members, as supporters in other ways that frees them up to live meaningful, humane lives and to produce and create and drive forward their own initiatives. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts that you want to share on this, because I think this is super important. I love the philosophy they're coming from in solving this problem. And I, I think going back to, are we asking the right questions? Well, what's awesome about this is a way we can do that is keeping this open and allowing all of these different 
DAOs, all these different entities, individuals to try different things. There's all of these different ideas floating around and governance structures and different incentive structures. Like how do we get people to do what it is that we want? And this is a perfect example of what we talked about in the last and in, in, in the first episode, which is uh, how do we, I mean, I, I know a lot of people are saying, how can we onboard as many people into the DAO mm. space as possible? But when you're looking at it at a single DAO, okay, well, let's extend that nat- logically to the end. What if you have 50,000 people in a DAO? Yes. And what Orca Protocol starts to talk about is naturally the larger it gets, the more difficult it gets to coordinate. And yes. that's, the, so that's the problem they're trying to solve for. And I love the way they're going about it. This is actually something I might want to talk about offline for Forefront because it's really interesting, <laughs> the, t- the type of way to uh, coordinate yes. people into these smaller, more specialized groups. And I-, I think we're adopting it to a certain extent. It's working really well, but I'll kind of hold off on my bombshell kind of thoughts here <laughs> on this until we go into the uh, the next one here, which is talking about decentralized autonomous media networks, because I, I think they go hand in hand here and get to a really, yes. really interesting point. Yes, yes. So as as Alex, as as you mentioned, you know, we as the DAOs grow, as the number of of uh, people and contributors increases, there there we come to a, a sort of fork in the road. You know, if we if we sort of emphasize decentralization, then we also uh, we also are kind of having to compromise on a certain amount of disorderliness. Uh, on the other hand, if we bring in organization and structure, then there's the risk of having centralized uh, governance power. So the way that Orca wants to solve this, and you've, you've already intimated it, it, they call the solution pods. So essentially, we're decentralizing or deconstructing the image of a monolithic DAO into a DAO of DAOs or a DAO of many or sub-DAOs. So this is sort of a composable intra-DAO design philosophy, which harkens back to our uh, discussion in the first podcast on Zodiac. Um, So pods are being described by Orca Protocol as a clean and intuitive interface for multi-sigs, access to which is gained through membership NFTs. So this kind of hat tip back to the radical funding model. But I think pods are reimagining governance as small, local, representative-based, resting in small working groups formed around a specific expertise. So I really, really love this, Alex, because the human element is brought back in. This is governance based around people with expertise and not just a narrow insistence on on-chain governance, not just a narrow conception of wallet-based governance. I think the I think the implication of an architecture of pods is that the the privileged knowledge or the expertise or specialization of a group of people is always relative and mutual uh, in that that privileged knowledge cannot unfold for the benefit of the whole without in turn resting on the privileged knowledge of others. So for me, instead of it's it's kind of calling out the sort of uh, the more fluid polarity instead of uh, instead of a binary instead of a duality. It's both centralization or decentralization versus uh, versus either or. So the interesting thing about pause is voting is no longer happening at this cumbersome DAO-wide level. It's happening locally. And, and I think it's this that fosters trust uh, between the pod and the larger community, and it frees the larger community from the cognitive burden of governance on matters um, outside of this realm of expertise. But I, I know we're going to jam on this later, but I just, I want to call this out because I think it's a really important shift in the way that the wind is blowing in this space, Alex. Again, I mentioned that it seems to be a reintroduction of the human element where things don't need to be on chain 
to be valid or legitimate. Um, in, in fact, we read in the article that the power of pods comes from the fact that they are designed to put people first. And the governance that happens within a particular pod may be incredibly informal and intimate, maybe just like messages sent to each other. It doesn't need to be proposals and on-chain and this and that. Um, but I definitely have I definitely have questions about this. You know, how do we, for instance, how do pods solve for the contextual awareness problem, right? These pods are still part and parcel of a master DAO, so to speak, the, probably the wrong language for that. But each pod is clearly autonomous in terms of having its own multi-sig and having its own area of expertise, but it's part of this larger context. So how do we solve for that, um, that, that inter-pod uh, communication? How do we solve for the problem of contextual awareness? Something that I thought of after hearing you talk through that is the pods might, from the, the size that DAOs eventually get to, might be a way to reintroduce Dunbar's number uh, mm. throughout the DAO, right? Because mm-hmm. Dunbar, and just for people not familiar with Dunbar's number, it's the concept that human beings cannot uh, adequately maintain more than 150 meaningful relationships in their network. There's just something in our brains at a primitive level where 150 through that research seems to be the number where our relationships break down. We can't really maintain any other relationships past that that are meaningful. Um, And these pods, I mean, think of 50,000, 60,000 people companies, like Salesforce is a great example. Mm -hmm. You obviously don't know all those different people and you might be involved with 150 other people. So maybe this is Dow's way, instead of having this flat hierarchy that kind of I'm just thinking through, I don't, this keeps coming Mm -hmm. to mind here, just thinking of how difficult it is to stay up to date with the discord channels that I'm in. And I'm just picturing a 50,000 person channel right now. And I'm just giving me anxiety. It just seems (laughs) like it would be like those Twitch stream chats that are just people spamming things over and over. And it's literally impossible to even read a single (laughs) sentence. Like that's giving me anxiety. So here's a way to kind of fragment. I mean, this might be a, a similarity here might be like a monolithic architecture versus a microservices architecture. Mm. And the pod concept might introduce social and human elements by turning these DAOs into microservice uh, uh, infrastructure, uh, um, architecture rather. Um, so I'm, I'm super interested to see if people adopt this and if it might solve some of those problems of there just being so much noise and give a chance to narrow down these different groups of people who have a good relationship, built rapport with each other, it can actually work towards a singular goal within the DAO. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the way that you you put that. The the Dunbar limit really really resonates. I think the um, the structure that we have at forefront with the guilds, like you said, I think people are already kind of uh, fumbling towards something like this with the guilds and with the smaller working groups. Um, but I, I think the the sort of blinks or the gaps between the guilds. Um, where it's just not possible, like you said, it's even with the the limited number of channels that we have, relatively speaking, in, in the forefront Discord, I find that it's just not possible to keep up to date on what the other guilds are doing, which I really want to do, and which is also very important because even though we're uh, quote unquote self-contained guilds with our own autonomous area of operations, we're also very much reliant on one, one another. We're also very much co-creating this common mission. Mm-hmm. And so I, I love the way that pods, like you said, is, this, is, this is kind of solving for that Dunbar limit and that sort of exhaustion of, of, uh, of not seeing people's faces and not hearing voices. And that adds another layer of difficulty to coherence. 
and then add on top of it, like you said, channel upon channel upon channel, uh, our pods, I think are a very promising way to, to solve for this. Um, so let's, let's go into another, uh, another new, uh, actually this is the new DAO segment. Uh, so this is DAM, Decentralized Autonomous Media Networks. So this recently launched last week. It was a crowdfund on Mirror. Uh, by Kiran Churukuri, and apologies if I'm, I'm not pronouncing that correctly, and Gabby Goldberg, to create the very first decentralized autonomous media network funded to the tune of 25 ETH. So these, these crowdfunds are happening so quickly, Alex. By the time I learn of them, it's done. It's already closed. Um, so we read, the next step function innovation in consumer crypto will be DAMs, decentralized autonomous media networks. If DAOs represent the next evolution of the corporation, DAMs represent the next evolution of networked media. And this is from the Mirror crowdfunding article. My sense of this, Alex, because I know we talked a little bit about this on the prep call yesterday, is that creators, the creators here are envisioning a decentralized Twitter or Instagram where the content creation is UGC driven versus like say a New York Times or even a Forefront where there's a gatekeeper and centralized decisions as to who can actually create the content. Um, so the DAM has three fundamental features, two of them which are very familiar to any DAO, a tokenized network owned by its users, built-in incentives for users to coordinate, uh, but the singular utility here for a DAM that differentiates, differentiates itself from other DAOs is that DAMs are here to create and distribute media. Now, here is a very interesting parallel with the, with the uh, mirror write-up from the Orca protocol when they were talking, the, introducing the pods. Uh, because here we see the dam creators once again focusing on lowering the costs of participation. So we're pivoting away from this sort of um, insistence on governance, uh, maximal governance, to now thinking about the ways that we can actually achieve governance minimization. Um, and so I love this. I love that we're seeing a, a sort of change in the zeitgeist. We're now mature enough that we can see the difficulties that come with offloading governance onto the community at large. Uh, so for Orca, that narrative was that scaling is difficult, token voting is broken, and that governance on a local pod level may be the solution. For the dam creators, they want to sidestep entirely the mechanisms of self-governance and treasury management. They want it to come down simply to the ability to rage quit and fork. So they write in their mirror crowdfunding article, in DAOs, the ways to participate and add value are often unclear. Self-governance and treasury management, while noble ideas in theory, often end up obfuscating opportunities for participants and stifling progress for the broader group. Dams rely on governance minimization, not maximization, to coordinate without any voting or explicit communication between members. So as I mentioned, Alex, this all hinges upon the ability to rage quit, which of course is not an option for a centralized monolithic platform like Instagram. So they write, fortunately with dams, the reality is different. When a dam becomes too noisy or the vibe changes from quality content to shitposting or spam, the participants have a choice. They can credibly exit. Dissatisfied participants can sell their tokens, branch out, and form an entirely new dam, taking a portion of the community with them. Governance is purely a function of tokenomics. What do you think about dam, Alex? So the, the theme that I'm seeing here with both Orca Protocol and with DAM is this reversion back to smaller groups. So they have a mm. really cool visual on their mirror post here with just three circles, each within uh, three circles within each other. So the largest circle being token holders, within that are bounty hunters, and within that further are core contributors. And we just heard there, DAMs rely on governance minimization 
not maximization. So the Mm -hmm. goal here is not to get more and more and more people to participate in governance, but to kind of delegate that responsibility to a smaller group of people. And I think there's this kind of philosophical switch that's starting to happen within DAOs where people are starting to realize the difficulties of having all of these different people in a flat organization, but we don't want to get rid of that ethos and the value there where these token holders can share in the success of the DAO. There's still a role for those people, but maybe it's not as involved as we thought it was before. So my kind of big thought here is that there is a, there's kind of like a political shift here and the way we're looking Mm. at this from seeing DAOs as democracies versus now seeing them as being more valuable, being run like republics. And the the big example here from history is uh, Athens being one of the most famous democracies. And if we look at our country, which I'm not saying is a shining beacon of light of the way to do things, right? There's, uh, <laughs> there's definitely some inherent gaps there, which we'll get to here in a second. But the, the founding fathers of the, the U.S., saw some of the pitfalls of just pure democracy and kind of rule of the mob, rule of the majority. Mm -hmm. And this is why we have something that's more closely aligned to a republic. You could say representative democracy. They're essentially the same things. And I know these are things we probably all learned in social studies in elementary school and middle school, but I'm actually going to throw those uh, in the show notes for people who need a refresher on the exact definitions between the two because they are similar. But I think the main difference here being that in a democracy, it's exactly like what people have been trying to do in DAOs and haven't seen much success, which is getting mm-hmm. everyone involved in every single vote. The reality here is that we don't necessarily want people voting on every single thing because everyone has different varying levels of commitment to the DAO. Everyone has varying levels of understanding on these different concepts. So for someone who doesn't really care about a certain proposal, you probably don't want that person voting on the proposal if they haven't done their homework. Um, and likely that person is saying, you know what, at some point I just want to, uh, find someone who I trust and give them my vote so they can represent me. And here's an interesting kind of switch in the blockchain space where we keep talking about the value of trustlessness and what blockchain Mm -hmm. has been doing an amazing job of is eliminating trust in the areas of the economy where you don't want trust, where trust is not a valuable thing. It, there, there's a there's um, there's a lot of exploitation going on in those trust based relationships right now, and blockchain is solving for those. But that's not to say that there is absolutely no role for trust in Web three. We're all human beings at the end of the day. There are certain aspects within the Web three space where now that we've eliminated the need for trust in kind of middlemen situations, we now can reintroduce trust in these areas that it's incredibly valuable. And I think this is what's going to start happening is DAOs are realizing the need to focus more on, instead of uh, treating the DAO as trying to get a ton of people to coordinate towards a single goal, what instead is going to be is something like a ton of people supporting a small core group of active participants who are working towards that goal. And the big Mm -hmm. difference here between the way our government is run and the way DAOs are run is you have uh, exit strategies like Rage Quit, like uh, the Zodiac module exit, where if people don't agree with the direction, if the person who they trusted, they break their trust or isn't representing them anymore, they can pull their stake and that down, they can go somewhere else. And that is the key difference, in my opinion, that will make more of a Republic style governance structure in DAOs work, as opposed to the way it's we, we all are seeing in the Web3 space 
it breaking down, uh, at least on the U.S. government side of things. So it'll be really, really interesting to see how many other DAOs adopt this philosophy, because I feel like for the people who haven't even adopted it and made this realization, there's a lot of people <laughs> thinking right now that this isn't working. We need another way. So I'm, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see a bunch of different DAOs adopting this method of really putting, uh, starting to establish trust in the smaller core group of developers and allowing mm -hmm. people the freedom to vote with their tokens to say, you know what, I trust this person, I trust this DAO in the mission, and I'm going to vote with my, my tokens and my money versus being involved in every single different snapshot vote. It's like, I trust this person, they can take the reins. And if they don't go the direction that I want, then I have the freedom to exit. Yes. And I love um, what, what comes up for me, Alex, is that I, I think I think we're kind of um, I think we need some sort of conceptual separations between what went between what we're aiming for. I, I remember in the previous section we were talking about the the Orca protocol. I highlighted this sentence. I was like, what what is it that we really want? You know, what is it that we're really aiming for? And I think in, in the insistence upon maximal participation, everyone voting on every single little thing, I think the intention is rooted in the move towards the decentralization, not only of, of capital, um, uh, but the decentralization of, of, of power, the decentralization of, uh, it, you know, the, the community being normally marginalized in, in the traditional corporate culture. We wanted to counteract that by bringing everyone into the fold in a very specific way. And so there is this sort of, I think, an implicit yearning that we're saying, look, we're, we're equal. We ought to meet one another as equals. So it shouldn't be that a centralized board of directors or a core group of people get to make all decisions. We should all have a say. And I think that this intention is so spot on and it, it's, it's speaking to very real and human aspirations that need to be fulfilled. But I think we need clear conceptual lines here. I think that there is a difference, uh, for instance, in the ways that we are naturally not alike or not equal to one another uh, which are actually fruitful for economic association. An example of this would be specialization, uh, expertise, unique knowledge and experience. And this goes back to what we were saying. I think DAOs are beginning to realize like, oh my gosh, maximal governance is not working. Um, people don't have the, the actual uh, knowledge or expertise in all the minutia. And we're creating a huge cognitive burden for the community in expecting this to happen. Uh, we're, we're kind of jumping through the hoops and doing formalisms that don't really matter. So th the former example of what I said of the ways in which we are naturally not alike and not equal to one another, and which are actually really good for economic association versus the ways in which we are completely alike and equal to one another. And I think this speaks to the impulse that kind of led us down this road to insisting upon maximal governance, which is like, hey, we're, we're, we're all human beings. We all deserve to have a stake in this economic life. We deserve to have a say. And I think that that is uh, incredibly justified. For instance, the, the desire for a, um, a minimum, a livable wage. I mean, I, I even, I really, 
I really uh, have a difficulty with that phrase of minimum wage, um, a livable wage, a sustainable wage, a humane wage, a humane way to make a living is, I think, a better way to put it. But I think in that desire, we are all justifiably alike. We are all human. We all deserve the same things. And so governance, whether or not this is going to be a DAO that does this, I, I don't think so. I think it's less economic and more sort of falling in the realm of equity and, and the legal world and, and government in, in the traditional sense of it. Um, so I don't know if that makes sense. I'm kind of thinking through it um, as, as you were talking. That makes sense. And I think the thing I failed to mention here is that, and I, I, I can imagine some people might feel a little uneasy when they're talking about, mm, this sounds like... Uh, a more like we're, we're creating an aristocracy internally in these different DAOs. And I, I don't want it to seem like that's mm-hmm. what we're asking for here. What it does, and this is how it's inherently difficult from the US, because right now there are inherently large opportunity costs to leaving the US. You could say, look, I don't like the direction this country is going, whatever, blah, blah, blah. My representatives aren't representing my interests. I'm going to leave the country. There's a lot of opportunity costs there. You have a certain you, you grew up in this culture. You have a bunch of friends here. You speak the English language. Um, I think things like remote work are reducing the barriers to exiting. And you, you, you are going mm-hmm. to see it with a lot more people exiting the country and, and exercising that, uh, that power, that freedom to do that. But with DAOs, what the, the biggest difference here is that there is a very clear and easy way through rage quit or exit or something equivalent, where if it's not representing your interests, you can leave. And that, the, that is by far the biggest difference is the power remains within the hands of the token holders. Even if they are not actively involved in governance, it still keeps the power and value in the hands of the token holders. And it keeps those uh, core contributors who are maybe way more involved in voting in all the different governance uh, that keeps them accountable because it's like, if we don't represent the people who are holding our tokens, then people are going to leave and it's going to drop the value of the token. It's going to be very difficult for us to do what we need to do here. So mm-hmm. I think that becomes the biggest difference here. And that's not to say that token holders in that DAO aren't just passively kind of observing here and just have a financial interest. They might just not have the unique skills to be a core contributor in that DAO. And yes. just like you said, we're all inherently unequal in different ways. They might be really, really good at some other skill or set exactly. of skills that are needed in some other DAO. So now they can be a token holder and passively be involved in a lot of these other DAOs and then be a core contributor in some other DAO. And I think people can play both roles long-term. I think that's what we might start to see. Yes, 100%. Awesome. Well, let's segue then into uh, another highlight here. I kind of foreshadowed this one talking about Scribe DAO. So back onto the theme of curation being very, very difficult. We had talked about um, different NFT tools for curation, but from just general Web3 crypto blockchain curation, this is still incredibly difficult. And the reality is everyone cares about different subsets of the Web3 space, right? Web, um, the metaverse is completely different from the data economy, which is completely different from um, you know, the DAO space. And there might be some overlaps there, but the thing is, there's not a one-size-fits-all for curation. And I've even found myself, there are certain quote-unquote curated lists, newsletters, telegram groups, whatever, where I almost want further curation within that curation. There's just so much stuff coming out. And the thing is here, if you try and centralize that curation, you're going to burn out the curator. It's, it's really, really hard. So what's interesting about ScribeDAO, who is actually run by Jim, he's a part of Forefront as well, really good guy. 
he um, he created this, and what he what this is aiming to do is decentralize curation. So eventually, what's going to happen is uh, people who curate for ScribeDAO will this is the way I've seen it so far, we'll post a thread on Twitter that's kind of like a TLDR on news that just got released. And they'll they'll add all the different links to the news source, but kind of give the cliff notes there so it's easy for someone to quickly skim. Mm-hmm. And what they'll do is they'll, they'll tag scribe down. And eventually what's going to happen is those people are going to be financially incentivized and rewarded for curating that content with ScribeDAO's native token. So this is a fantastic way to decentralize the curation there. And what I imagine will eventually happen is you will get certain themes and topics that are curated and you could subscribe to a particular list and say, I'm interested in metaverse. So I'm just going to look through ScribeDAO's, all of the curated metaverse topics and news that are TLDRs. And I can quickly skim through them, get a feel for the story. And if I'm interested in some of them, then I can click and read the full story on two or three of them. And I think this might be the future of curation where you're decentralizing the work. And because you have enough people working on this, you have a way to kind of segment the industry. And it's not like, here's all things Web3. It's more of like, what are you interested in Web3? All right, Mm -hmm. let's boil down and make sure that we're giving you content specifically in that space. So again, there are tons of different projects going on talking about curation. I mean, Gabby Goldberg with Decentralized Autonomous Media networks. Um, that's another example of curation there. So there's lots of different methods for coming about the, the same outcome. So I think that's an amazing project. I'll be interested to see how people adopt it. I'm subscribed to them on, I'm following them on Twitter. So, uh, I've loved it so far personally. Yeah. I was, I was really curious about this. I had heard about it, but didn't check it out until we were doing research for, for the pod. And I hopped into the discord and, and kind of looked at the stats. So they have 700 members mm-hmm. in the discord. They have 80 scribes and they have 23 knowledge seekers. So knowledge seekers is the only role that can uh, send a request in the requests and assignments channel. So these are scribes that have done three plus assignments. I checked the notion because they have a backlog of requests that are, that they keep track of on notion. And uh, to date, I see a total of 250 plus requests. The vast majority are already complete. And there's a very convenient link out where you can click out and go to the the tweet where uh, that person is summarizing the content. Uh, uh, Some are assigned and not yet completed. And just a handful remain unassigned at this point. Um, I think in looking at some of the older requests, when I looked at the tweets, they have quite a limited amount of engagement, but that I think probably uh, natural. The ScribeDAO is just getting on its feet. and I also loved that the scribes incentive was to build up their crypto resume and their social capital and that the mm. knowledge seekers who are putting out these requests are essentially being leaned on and saying, hey, if you're going to put a request out there and the scribe is doing this contribution, then it would be great if you could try to fold them into your network by retweeting them. So I um, love that. Yeah, it's really, really cool. It's a really cool way of operating. Killing multiple birds with one stone there. And another thing we had talked about is how do you build that Web3 resume? Rabbit hole Mm -hmm. is a very, um, very common or a very well-known way to build your resume in Web3. I imagine there's going to be lots of different other projects that this is something. So I I just recently went full-time in the Web3 space and I found it exceedingly difficult for the first few months to even one, figure out where people are even meeting. And then two, how to get my name out there so that people actually know what it is that I'm talking about. And my mm-hmm. goal for the longest time was 
just get a phone call. Once I get on a phone call, <laughs> I can make my case. People can tell that I'm at least somewhat fluent in this space, have a conversation. That's exactly what happened. Once I got on the call, it was, it was smooth sailing from there. But it is so difficult for people here. Whereas a traditional resume on LinkedIn, there is yep. absolutely nothing to suggest before I got this job that I'm involved in this space. And I was trying different things like saying, yeah, I'm delegating on the graph network. Okay, great. Yeah, That's yeah. little. What is something provable <laughs> that can show people I know to a certain degree what it is that I'm talking about so that they actually want to schedule a call with me and talk. And I think that's a two-way street here. There are tons of open positions, tons of places are hiring. And right now what people are doing is just saying out on Twitter, hey, we're hiring, please, please reach out to us. And it's kind of this ad hoc way. But if you have this new platform, like a scribe dial, like a Mm -hmm. rabbit hole, that is more on-chain proof that you have done a certain amount in the Web3 space, that can get people past that first um, kind of first round of interviewing in a way and say, these people should know to a certain degree what they're talking about because they participated in this space. They've written on these different topics and I can see the way that they write and the way that they think. Um, I love seeing stuff like that. And with ScribeDAO, you're not only solving the curation problem, but you're also solving the Web3 resume problem. So just genius. I love it. Yeah, absolutely agree that the benefits for increasing legibility, that's, that's, where, the, that's where the benefits are going to come. Awesome. So we're getting into uh, my favorite part of the podcast here, where we kind of take a step back and talk about much higher level stuff. Um, we got we got two more stories here, two more topics that we're really going to cover. The first being a big piece of news in the last week about Facebook going down. So this was all over Twitter and especially <laughs> crypto Twitter, where people are saying, oh, Web3 solves this, Web3 solves this. Yeah. So um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I wonder about that too, because then you have situations like Solana is the natural one that I keep thinking about is like, okay, it, how does Web3 solve for this? And then you have arguments like Solana might be relatively more centralized if the, all the developers could just shut down the network. Is that properly decentralized? These are things that uh, people will have to learn as they get involved more in the Web3 space. It's like, what truly is the difference here in Web3? How can I determine if something is truly decentralized? Because if it is truly decentralized, mm-hmm. it's much, much more difficult for the entire network to really go down. So yeah. I, I think what this could end up being is like an aha moment for some people in the traditional Web2 space who are seeing, hmm, these traditional systems, architectures, uh, uh, organizational structures, et cetera, et cetera, might not be as secure as I originally thought. And what I thought might be a cool exercise here is start to talk through this web, this Facebook going down might be that aha moment for some people. And, and I love talking through each one of our different aha moments. I know, Caroline, we were talking about it uh, to each other, but uh, do you want to just share what your kind of aha moment, your light bulb moment, really, where you started to realize the implications of blockchain? Or, I mean, even maybe taking a step back, it's like, what was that jarring experience that actually made you seek out blockchain as a potential solution to the problems you were really seeing? Well, I've always been interested, uh, passionate about um, social justice. So I, it, it was something that I had to pursue outside of my, my formal vocation, but it was something that I felt just very uh, pregnant questions around. It was a matter of urgency for me. I, I didn't, I really, really wanted to work on sort of reconceptualizing or reimagining what money could be. Like when I looked at economic association, when I looked at the reality of the situation on the ground, I just saw that 
there actually wasn't any scarcity. You know, it was human beings contributing their their unique expertise, uh, contributing their unique gifts. The human potential itself was uh, like bottomless. To me, it was like the, the potentiality of of, of what we could develop with the right support from the community, from our families, from each other, uh, had, had no limit, had no ceiling. So in that sense, there was no scarcity. I, I saw that money itself, the tool that we were using to kind of communicate uh, economically uh, with one another was the thing that uh, sort of imposed an, an artificial scarcity. Um, I, I remember reading this uh, one article, it was, uh, I forget now who the author was, but he was, he was talking about land values. And he was saying that uh, in his studies and in the studies of the economists that he had been following, right before there's some sort of a huge economic crash, land values are usually like sky high, um, completely unsustainable. And, mm-hmm. and so he, he was talking about this sort of paradox that we're in when there's a quote unquote depression, uh, when the whole money system locks up. And he's like, if you think about it, uh, in, even in the worst depression, we human beings need to consume. We need certain things. We need food. We need water. We need a home. We need a shelter over the heads of the people that we love. We need things. And we are absolutely willing to work, to contribute, to build those things that we need for even basic mortal uh, physical survival. So we have needs. We have the willingness to work. But what we lack is the tool of coordination because during the depression, the the tool of money has now been locked up. It's been frozen and no, no more of that tool is forthcoming from a centralized government. But he said, if you think about it, the absolute essential ingredients of what is necessary to keep the economic association going is there, which is the human need, the human desire, and the human willingness to work on behalf of one another and on be, to, to fulfill one's needs. This was a huge eye-opener for me, just in terms of like my journey down the economic, uh, the heterodox economic uh, rabbit hole. And when I saw, when I first began to explore things like NFTs and especially social tokens, my mind was really blown, Alex, was, was like, oh my gosh, we've, we've, we, we now have a mechanism by which um, we can capitalize the aspirations of other human beings without requiring them to go into debt uh, to a bank. Um, mm-hmm. and, and again, I think the the thing that we have to keep in mind is if, if you can even qualify for a loan today, uh, if you can even qualify for that loan, it's usually going to be on terms that are quite difficult and crippling yep. for the entrepreneur right out of the gate. So again, if you are an entrepreneur and you are given a loan to get your venture off the ground and those terms are immediately crippling you and, and constraining you in your ability to maneuver and to move, you're basically screwed right at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> social tokens solves this. And the gesture behind social tokens is so, it's so generous. It is so um, uplifting. It, it so touches my heart because it's one human being saying to another, um, I don't need to see your credit report. Um, <laughs> I don't need to run a background <laughs> check on you. I see your passion as a creator And Mm. I want to support this vision that you haven't even realized yet. You're saying you want to do something. And the power of your aspiration is something that I want to capitalize and support. That was my aha moment. I I love that. And when I keep asking people this question, I see two really compelling events here. There is an event somewhere out in the world 
that that is a jarring experience and makes you want to seek out a solution. And then the next experience Mm -hmm. there is when you finally realize and find Web3 and have that aha moment for the implications for what just blockchain technology in general can, can do to solve all these different problems. And once you have that moment, at least all the people I've spoken to are just ravenously consuming information after they make that realization because they're just they're seeing the opportunities out there. And uh, for my own aha moment, I had both of those uh, those things happen to me as well. It was it really started at the beginning of this year when just the shit show was happening at the Capitol, and I had this kind of realization that I don't necessarily have as much faith in the traditional systems as I thought I did, and mm-hmm. just telling myself that. I was naturally seeking out solutions to that problem. And I, I feel like a lot of people can be at this moment where they have that jarring experience and they're looking for solutions and might not necessarily find Web3. But naturally for me, coming from the economics background, I mean, there's a lot of parallels on the blockchain space and the, just the tokenomics aspects there. So I was naturally drawn to that. And uh, like many other people had known about blockchain, known about Bitcoin, Ethereum, but hadn't done much research on it. And it was just that compelling event that really drove me to persistently figure out how this technology works. And eventually got to that point where I was like, oh my gosh, look at all of the actual use cases for this. This is not just another currency. This is a development platform that people can build trustless systems on this. What are all the different ways that we can eliminate middlemen and free people and have them take back control uh, and ownership of their own data? Um, Mm -hmm. And just going down that rabbit hole and researching that, that was kind of my journey there. And when we think back to the last episode, I talked about getting people past the crypto membrane is the way Spencer Graham from Dow House coined that term. Um, and he was mainly talking about two different types of membranes. He was focusing mainly on the membrane of getting people who have uh, had the crypto and blockchain aha moment and are, we're trying to now get them involved in things like DAOs. And how, how can we advance them even more quickly? How can we on-ramp them and reduce the, the ramp time for those people who have already gone past that membrane? But there's this other membrane of people who either have not had this jarring aha moment or have had that jarring aha moment and might not necessarily know about Web3 and have gotten to that realization point of the use cases for this technology. And it, it begs the question of like, there's this other concept in business called the chasm. Crossing the chasm is the title mm-hmm. of a book by Jeffrey Moore, very famous business book. And it's the idea that there's this gap in a kind of bell curve of total customers adopting a new technology. And you have the, the innovators and the early, early investors or the early adopters who can hear about the technology, understand its implications and run with it. And I think at this stage in Web3, all of the people involved in it are kind of in that camp. They've done their own research. They've gone on their own journey. They've had that aha moment for the jarring experience. They've had the aha moment and understanding the value of Web3, and they've ran with it. And once they get into the community, now there's a bunch of different people trying to usher them in and reduce their ramp time. However, what's going to happen, I don't know how soon here, but we're going to get to this chasm where there is an inherent gap in the needs of people between those uh, innovators and early adopters and the the next early majority. These people, they're a totally different audience. Since they haven't started down the crypto rabbit hole, they use a different vocabulary, they have a different perspective at this stage, 
And you need to use that different vocabulary. And it's almost like in a business where you're talking about inbound versus outbound. Right now, there is a lot of inbound in mm-hmm. Web3 and crypto. People are understanding it. They're naturally coming into the space. We're helping usher them in. But it's going to get to a place where we kind of have to do some outbound research. We kind of have to do some marketing and say, how can we help people who have had that jarring experience understand that this technology is out there and kind of help catalyze that next aha moment? so that they can start doing their own research. And then hopefully at that point, have the infrastructure to have a more structured journey for those people who might not be as uh, akin to just doing all their own research, scouring Twitter, scouring YouTube, scouring telegrams, and have a more guided journey for those people. So I'm really interested in, in that, in ushering in that next group of people who are going to be the early majority getting into the crypto space. And kind of doing that outbound and handholding versus just waiting for people to come to us because I feel like there's going to be a slowdown of people who have that experience on their own. Yeah, and I as you were talking I you're, you're speaking about what could what could might what might catalyze the the movement of the masses to web3 what are the sort of catalysts that we we could look out for. I I actually wanted to share this uh, this very recent aha moment and it was very much related to to Facebook going down but I think something like this might uh, actually be a catalyst event. Um, this was actually the not the Facebook going down, but the, this was the accompanying story of the Facebook whistleblower, uh, Francis Haugen. Um, mm-hmm. So I was reading an Engadget piece on on uh, Haugen's congressional testimony uh, where she, she testified for several hours uh, about her uh, experience working for Facebook and gave concrete suggestions about how she would, what she would do to fix things. And I, I read about her, one of her specific suggestions that a dedicated uh, federal oversight body be formed uh, within the Federal Trade Commission to oversee and regulate social media platforms. So I think, Alex, something like this might catalyze a a deeper movement of the masses toward Web3 because a central promise of Web3 is decentralization, which means censorship-resistant protocols and platforms. So we're we are, we're working towards a world where in contrast to Web 2, we're going to own our data. We're going to own our identity and we're going to take this around with us. Um, and no centralized entity can de-platform us. Of course, this is not to say that um, there are not very deeply concerning issues around the kind of unbundled free speech that is being unleashed by social media platforms right now. And I kind of want to just do a quick hat tip to Eric Weinstein because he was the one that is the one that gave me that term. By unbundled free speech, he meant that it, free speech in the time of the founders was something very different. It had all these qualities and characteristics that were bundled up in it that are no longer here. For instance, in the time of the founders, if you wanted to communicate something, you had to write a series of essays, right? You had to get out your quill pen. You had to write a series of essays. You had to get them printed. And then you had to de- hand deliver them, you know, or you could hop on a crate in a park and speak very loudly, hoping that your voice carried. So these were very time-consuming acts and one's audience was naturally very limited. So social media has completely taken this free speech bundle and completely destroyed it. It doesn't look anything like it looked in the time of the founders when they were ideating governance, when they were ideating the constitution. So Weinstein's argument is that we have to abstract the underlying principles of the Bill of Rights to the completely transformed conditions that we find in the present day, right? Or the courts have to do this, or we we have to amend our constitution something, but we seem to have lost our faith uh, in our ability to do this. So I think the dangers of unbundled speech, which Haugen testified to very poignantly, 
Um, they're very real, but these are sociological issues that I think I think should not be addressed primarily through government regulation and, and censorship, because I think this is a very, very slippery slope. You know, for instance, just yeah. yesterday, Alex, we learned that Anthony Pompliano had been deplatformed yeah. by YouTube. It, it, they singled out one interview of his on Bitcoin and said that it, quote, violated our harmful and dangerous policy, end quote. And there was no other sort of indication like how, in what sense, this interview on crypto violated the harmful and dangerous policy. But if you can imagine this policy and that language, harmful and dangerous, being regulated at a federal level, if Bitcoin crypto content is deemed harmful and dangerous and justifies deplatforming, then I, I can easily see a policy like that subsuming issues that express dissent or criticize the government or, or just intended to innovate against entrenched social problems. In the U.S. Constitution, at least, we have the Bill of Rights. This restrains the government from making any law that abridges freedom of speech or, or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble or to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And like you said earlier, this is stuff that we know from social sciences. But I think this activity of peaceably assembling will more and more happen in digital spaces. I think this activity of petitioning the government for a redress of grievances will more and more become permissionless. It will more and more happen in mm -hmm. communities of builders and creators that are not marching in the streets, but innovating and building on the web, like crypto, like what we're trying to do with Web3. So these, the Bill of Rights, the, the protection against government overreach, all of these activities of dissent, criticism, innovating would naturally be very sensitive to governments that would rather not be criticized or would rather that established power structures or money architectures remain in place. So I think the suggested federal oversight of social media cracking down on quote unquote harmful and dangerous speech is potentially catastrophic. And I, for me anyway, this was a big aha moment. And I'm grateful yeah. that builders in the Web3 space have been thinking about this for a long time. Yeah. And the thing is, this sounds like it's straight out of four, uh, Fahrenheit 451, right? Who gets to determine what's harmful and dangerous? This is proverbial yeah, book. Yeah. Burning. And the yes. thing is, a lot of people might be feeling exactly the same way. And they might be feeling one of two ways afterwards. They either feel powerless because they have no idea what kind of solution could actually solve for those problems, or they chase after a solution. Like you were saying is, they might have their hearts in the right place and see the problems, but the solutions just aren't feasible to actually solve for the problems. And I know mm -hmm. we're all biased here in the Web3 space. We feel like this is the best way to solve for this, but at least giving it an audience so that people can determine for themselves that, yes, this is the solution I want to work towards because I feel like it's the best thing out there for solving the problems that I and all these other people see in the world. Yes. Well, I, I want to get into our last topic. Um, it, again, talking about this common thread here of burnout and uh, feeling uh, people feeling like they're in an echo chamber in this space. And uh, mm -hmm. I mean, this is coming from me as well. I absolutely recently, very recently felt very burned out where I'm just constantly checking Twitter. My head hurts. I feel like I'm just going in loops. I'm hearing the same things over and over and over. This is something that MetaDreamer had talked about as well. And mm -hmm. there's just a lot of burnout because we feel like if we're not uh, constantly in the loop, constantly on Twitter, constantly on Telegram, in these discords, that we're going to miss out. And mm -hmm. uh, we keep talking about this, a day in crypto is an eternity 
in the real world. So you miss one day, you feel like you come back and it's like a caveman coming into 2020. It's, it's, an, it's insane. And I feel like curation is going to partially help with that. So you have less to sift through. But the reality is this, this is something that everyone in every single field deals with. And mm-hmm. I want to talk about reverting back to studying first principles, thinking and topics, because I feel like this is not only helpful for the creativity, but this is going to be helpful for giving people a chance to take a break away from Web3, come back and actually be a lot more effective than they would have been if they had just put their head down and talked and only researched about stuff that's relevant specifically to Web3. So um, some of my heroes, I, I'm, I'm someone who bounces around to lots of different things. I have tons of different interests. And that can be a really bad thing when it comes to traditional work environments where it's like you sit down and you do mm-hmm. this work for eight hours straight. And it's like, <laughs> I just don't operate very well there. I have lots of different interests. I, I move to seemingly unrelated things over time. There's, and there's pros, to, pros and cons to that. But my, some of my heroes who have demonstrated success in this kind of um, um, working philosophy are Ben Franklin and Leonardo da Vinci. Um, so both very, very famous, well-known, uh, polymaths, they were known for their scientific contributions, philosophy, art, um, all these different other type of type of things and, and skills that they got involved in. And it's, you look from the outside and it's like, how, how could these guys have been de- deemed experts in all of these different topics where some people seemingly work their entire lives towards mm. trying to master one particular skill and they're doing nothing but that. Um, and you see this, you see examples of this, of if you take a step back and you go into other different areas of study, seemingly unrelated areas of study, you unlock a ton of creativity here. And great examples here are like Nike using inspiration from biology for shoe designs, right? Not seemingly overlapping (laughs) high fashion and biology, but the reality is there's, there's similarities there and inspiration that they can use to design something that seemingly has absolutely no relation to something like biology. Uh, another great example is Josh Waitzkin. Um, he was a child chess prodigy, and he famously had a very well-rounded childhood, especially in contrast to a lot of the Soviet players he was coming up against, where the Soviet players were traditionally having 15-hour, 16-hour days doing nothing but studying everything about chess. And Josh Waitzkin is, you know, he's putting the work in, but he's also going out on fishing trips and playing football and playing chess in Central mm-hmm. Park with a totally different opponents with totally different strategies and kind of having a normal childhood. And the thing is, he was absolutely dominant at his age. And you could say it's coincidence, but in my opinion, it, it, it's a factor of this kind of well-rounded holistic education, this kind of liberal arts style education. And in, in the crypto space, again, there is this pressure to just constantly be deeply involved in Web3 specific stuff because of how fast it moves. And I want to take this platform to, to tell people to please try and take a break mentally from the space. And here might be my, my recommendation here. If you can, and you can do any amount of time here, whatever you feel comfortable with, but if you can take maybe a month and you're not pulling yourself out completely from the Web3 space, but you are setting aside a large chunk of your day that where you would be scouring Twitter, you would be scouring Telegram and maybe doing non-productive studying activities in the, in the Web3 space, you instead purposefully pick out a fiction book. Can be anything. I love fantasy. Um, the new Dune movie is coming out. The book is fantastic. Maybe take Dune. Something that has absolutely nothing to do with Web3. You're not thinking about Web3 when you're reading it. 
read something that is fiction. The next book you can read is something that is nonfiction, a biography, historical fiction, something like that. And then finally, maybe you pick up a more generalist business book. Um, I, I think we were talking before this, there are certain books out there that specifically highlight things in the uh, like first principles thinking, right? So I kind of put together three different books that I'm going to take a step, a, a step away. I'm going to devote a certain part of my day to just reading and thinking about things that have absolutely nothing to do with Web3. Mm-hmm. And the concept here, again, coming from a background in <laughs> psychology is we tend to, especially in the, the crypto space, I feel like there's a lot of people who really over-rely on the active conscious part of their brain. And the brain is like this iceberg effect where the conscious active part of the brain is only what you can see on the surface is a tiny bit. But there is this massive, massive iceberg underneath the surface that is your subconscious. And the subconscious part of the brain is so, so powerful. And you need to give your brain space to allow that part of your brain to actually do the work. And by taking a step, and, and this is, seems so counterintuitive, especially to workaholics, and there's a lot of them in the, in the Web3 mm-hmm. space, where mm-hmm. it's like, I need to do more, I need to do more, I need to work harder, I need to work harder. And the thing is, that has the exact opposite effect than if you had taken a step back you had studied other things, play a musical instrument during the day. That was something that was in Ben, ben Franklin's daily routine, playing an instrument. He's mm-hmm. using different parts of his brain. Things that have absolutely nothing to do with your, your field of study, it gives your subconscious part of your brain a chance to work and put those pieces together without you having to sit there and hammer away and say, how can I connect the dots on this? There's tons of famous examples. I know, you know, you'd mentioned Einstein before where he would have these epiphanies after weeks of just taking a break from something and he'd finally find the answer to some mathematical equation he was pondering. And that's the deep subconscious part of his brain that's trying to connect those dots rather than him sitting down and hammering away with his active conscious mind at that problem. So I, I, I want, I, what I think this is going to help people do is by taking a break from the just hammering away at the Web3 space, you read up on different topics, fantasy books, nonfiction, more business general books, it will give your subconscious part of your brain a chance to connect those dots for you. And when you come back to the Web3 space, you'll be feeling way more refreshed and you'll be a hell of a lot more creative because now you are using these seemingly unrelated fields, science, philosophy, math, history, uh, the politics within the Dune book, the, uh, the biography and learning from the way people organize their day. You will be surprised on the connections that you make and how relevant they become to Web3. And you found answers to questions you've been asking over and over and over in the seemingly most innocuous places. Yeah, I think this is so powerful, Alex. And I'm I'm so happy uh, that we are weaving so many different sorts of threads. It's, it's exactly like you were, you've just been saying. We're weaving so many threads throughout this podcast. We're not just talking about um, you know, tokenomics, we're talking about design, we're talking about product, we're talking about psychology now. Um, so I, I, I love the direction that we're going in. And again, calling back out to the first episode, we were talking about MetaDreamer, and he was kind of um, bemoaning the fact that he's, he's, he's kind of stuck in this echo chamber where he's going to the same events with 
all these different people that show up and they're all saying the same things. And he said this very, uh, this very profound comment that he feels that he's getting less and less creative the longer he's in this space. And that is counterintuitive, just like you said. It's like we, we mm-hmm. think expertise and mastery and the command of something comes from completely si- just single-mindedly uh, pouring ourselves into that. But that's actually not the case. Um, and I think if if uh, if you were to apply your terrific recommendations and perspectives to Meta Dreamers' um, uh, situation, I would say to Meta Dreamer, look, um, you can't avoid going to these conferences. You have to go. It's not like we're saying you shouldn't go. You, you should meet up with your friends. You should meet up with your colleagues, even though you have this awareness. And this awareness is actually very powerful. And the fact that you have it means that in addition to going to these conferences, you can quote unquote counteract or balance. Um, this sort of steady stream of information that is coming at you that is quite familiar by dipping into physics, by reading about history, by by uh, looking at uh, philosophers, uh, things that are seem extremely divergent. But then, like you said, the the subconscious mind begins to draw those connections. We begin to kind of break down, uh, dissolve the hard lines among concepts and subjects and topics, and we begin to actually reach for those metaphors. And that's when the enlightenment, these, these illuminating moments happen. And it reminds me of um, the last uh, community hangout that we just had with Kia Krutler. Um, I think I saw you in the audience, Alex, but I was so impressed when I was listening to her introduce herself. Um, she is a writer, artist, philosopher who uh, engaged in community organizing, cooperative organizing before she ever came to the Web3 space. Um, a self-taught front-end developer. So that's that to me. That's an exemplar of what you're saying, and um, I, I love I love that we're we're closing uh, the episode this way. And yes, we are actually coming to the close because now this time we've outdone ourselves. We are past the two-hour mark, um, but I've had an absolutely fantastic time. Um, Alex, uh, once again, thank you so much for the great conversation and the, the ideas that I'll take with me for a very long time, including this, this last part about how we can really cultivate, uh, creativity, keep ourselves from, from burning out. Always have an amazing time with these conversations. It's so rejuvenating. And, uh, no matter how much we plan this out, I know we seem to always find new and novel <laughs> things to talk about uh, on the fly. So it's, it's so much fun. You never know where the conversation is going to go. Um, for everyone else out there, please, please give us feedback. This is, this is not a set in stone um, kind of format. We're responding very actively to your feedback. So please let us know if this is the type of stuff that you want to hear, if there are other topics you want to hear, if there's other formatting you want to hear. Um, I'm having an amazing time and I know I'm going to even have a a better time if I know I am actively working towards and providing information that everyone else out there wants Mm -hmm. to hear as well. So please give us that feedback. But I had had an amazing time as always, Caroline. So looking forward to the next one. Yes, absolutely. And we'll see you next time, friends. Thanks again for tuning in. Bye-bye. See ya. Hey fam, thanks for listening to the Forefront Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so please visit us on Twitter at Forefront underscore or on the web at Forefront.market. You can come through our Discord too, anytime, night or day. We'll see you next time.